You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable, exploring the clinical and professional issues that are foremost in the minds of the medical community. And here's your host, Dr. Michael Greenberg. First described in the 1880s, tuberous sclerosis, or TSC, is a genetic disease that affects multiple organs. It can cause tumors in the skin, kidneys, brain, heart, eyes, as well as other organ systems. Most patients who are mildly affected by TSC lead active and productive lives, but it's important to note that TSC is a lifelong companion and patients receive continuous follow-up care. And they have a personal interest in TSC, as my grandson has TSC and we've been living with it for a few years. I'm Michael Greenberg. Joining me today is our special guest, Dr. Stephen L. Roberts, Chief Scientific Officer of the Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance, Silver Spring, Maryland. Stephen, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. All right, let's start off with a short definition of, of tuberous sclerosis. What is it? Sure. Tuberous sclerosis is a disorder that was first described by the presence of tubers in the brain, and that's where the name comes from. So abnormal cell growth that was shaped sort of like potatoes, that's, that's the word tuber. And now we know that it's much more broad than that. It's not just about the tubers in the brain, but it affects various parts of the body. And we know it's a genetic disorder, so do we know what really causes it and and the inheritance pattern? We have. We've learned a lot about TSC. So it is a genetic disorder. It occurs at a prevalence of about 1 in in 6,000 live births, or an incidence of 1 in 6,000 live births. So uh, it's rare, but it's not extremely ultra-rare. Because it's genetic, it can be inherited, it can be passed on to children. However, two-thirds of the cases are de novo. So they've occurred due to mutations that have occurred in the germline, and they're new in that particular uh, individual. In- interestingly enough, I'm a dermatologist, and, and I knew the skin signs of TSC, but I really wasn't aware of it until it affected my family. And, and so I think that's probably apropos for most doctors across the country. We know a little bit about it. So can you give us spend a little time telling us about the general signs and symptoms of TSC? Yes. Uh, in fact, the signs and symptoms of TSC are so diverse, and they can vary from individual. That's actually where the the C and TSC comes from. It's a complex. It's a complex of various manifestations. So a lot of these are originated in the brain, as I mentioned, with the abnormal cell growth that can lead to tubers in the brain. A lot of the manifestations are neurologic in origin. So seizures are very common. About 85% of individuals with TSC experience epilepsy at some point during their life. Infantile spasms are a particularly devastating kind of seizure that occur within the first two years of life, and they can be even more devastating if they're undiagnosed. These infantile spasms don't look like the standard tonic-clonic seizure, and they often go undiagnosed for a considerable period of time. And during that time, the child can be having multiple seizures, sometimes hundreds of these seizures a day, and that clearly impacts their development. You can actually, unfortunately, see some babies progress. So the neurologic features are are extreme. The epilepsy, it can lead to cognitive impairment, cognitive disability. Autism is very common. About 50% of those with TSC are on the autism spectrum. Things like anxiety and sleep disorders are commonly reported by adults who have TSC, who are otherwise normally functioning and may not have the cognitive impairment. But TSC can affect other 
organs in the body as well. The abnormal cell growth doesn't occur just in the brain. It can occur very commonly on the skin, as you noted, being a dermatologist. Sometimes it can result in abnormal pigmentation or on the face angiofibromas, which can be not only disfiguring but can bleed. Renal manifestations, angiomyelopomas in the kidney, for example, again, it can be a life-threatening complication of CSD. And then there's the lung. Uh, Lymphangiomyomatosis, or LAM, can occur as part of TSD, particularly in women. Most are not symptomatic, at least not for a long period of time. But if LAM becomes a clinical problem, it can progress reasonably rapidly to the where transplant is, is the only option. So there are a lot of, there's a, a huge variety in the supersources complex in terms of the signs and symptoms. And that's one of the things that makes it challenging to get that early diagnosis and get our heads around it. And there are cardiac tumors too, aren't there? Rhabdomyomas. Absolutely. Great point. So the cardiac rhabdomyomas tend to show up very early in life and then regress or at least don't grow as the heart grows. These are often useful tools for early diagnosis because the rhabdomyomas may show up on ultrasound even in a late-stage pregnancy. And if that's noted, that could get the attention of a, of a neonatal cardiologist who could then consider the infant for a, a diagnosis of TSC after it's born. That's really ideal to get that diagnosis very early. Fortunately, the rhabdomyomas are, in, in most people, they're not, they don't cause symptoms, but in some, they cause irregular, irregular heartbeats and electrical activity, and, and therefore, they may need to be treated. So I guess this is why we use the term linchpin disease with this, because it ties in so many organ systems and so many problems. Is that correct? That's right. So we think of TSC as a linchpin disease because it's related to so many things. Autism is a part of it. Epilepsy is a part of it. The abnormal cell growth, the overactivity of the mTOR pathway, which I haven't talked about yet, that ties into cancers. Uh, TOR inhibitors are being used, several types of cancers, particularly rare types. So what we learn in TSC about what leads to this high risk of autism spectrum disorder, what leads to this high epilepsy, these abnormal cell growths, can impact our understanding of various diseases, and we hope that that works the other way around, too, that what we learn from the study of epilepsy and autism in general might give us new ideas on how to think about it in TSC. So you mentioned a few things about the different organ systems, and I know in our case with our grandson, it was diagnosed in utero with a, a rhabdo. For general doctors, how is TSC diagnosed and, and treated? Most commonly, TSC is diagnosed as a result of a neurologic consultation. The more that we get the awareness out there about cardiac rhabdomyomas and the more that physicians, especially the neonatal physicians and the cardiologists, can be aware of that as something to rule out if they see a cardiac rhabdo, that should lead to even earlier diagnosis. But at this point, generally the diagnosis is triggered by a manifestation that has already begun to occur. So seizures being very common, infantile spasms occurring in about a third of those with ESC, it's generally a neurologic aspect of the disorder that leads them to the doctor's office and for that search for an explanation and a diagnosis. Now, that being said, there are also adults who have gone undiagnosed into adulthood. We have, you know, many examples of parents who had children and it turned out that their children, maybe they expressed infantile spasms, they presented with infantile spasms or maybe other types of seizures when they were a child and they got the diagnosis and then when the history was taken of the parent, it became clear that they should be considered 
for a diagnosis. Perhaps the parent had something that they described as severe acne when they were younger, and well, they had some seizures, but it was controlled and it went away. And because they developed normally, nobody put two and two together and, and got them that TSC diagnosis until their child was born. So it can present that way as well. Unfortunately, there are a few who may not be diagnosed until the kidney or the lung issues come up, but that's less common. The most common presentation is that diagnosis in childhood as a result of a visit to a generally a pediatric neurologist. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greenberg, and joining me today is Stephen Robards, PhD, Chief Scientific Officer of the Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance. Let's switch to the Alliance now and talk about that a little bit. Can you tell us about the TSC Alliance organization and, and what they do? Sure. So the, the mission of the Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance is that we're dedicated to finding a cure for tuberous sclerosis complex while improving the lives of those affected by the disorder. So our vision is that we want to get to a world at some point where TSC is either non-existent or, more likely, is so well controlled that it's really not impacting the quality of lives of people anywhere. That's where we want to get. So the, the TS Alliance is the only national organization that represents individuals with tuberous sclerosis complex. As such, we have a variety of types of services that we offer, things like information, connections to others who have TSC. We are a point of reference for those who are not only newly diagnosed, but perhaps entering a different phase of their life and need to understand what do they, what do they look out for? What do they consider next with TSC, whether it's for their children or for another loved one or for themselves? We can connect them with local resources. We have over 30 community alliances that are purely volunteer-run that we work with to interface with community members and others with TSC nearby, and that covers the whole country. So we can connect people with local individuals, and we can help connect them with local resources or state resources, things like educational advocacy. We have a full-time staff person whose expertise is in education, and she can help parents advocate for their child with their educational system to get the service that they need. And then finally, we, we interface with a number of clinics around the country. Currently, we have 44 TSC clinics in the U.S. that are recognized by the TS Alliance. So these are centers that have applied to us and stated how they're going to serve those with TSC in terms of what specialists they have available. How do the specialists work together to get the best coordinated care possible? And so we can refer individuals to the nearest TSC clinics. In some cases, they may live very remote. We also maintain a list of doctors that we know who have worked with folks with TSC so we can help connect them with somebody knowledgeable. Now, does the Alliance coordinate with research facilities also, and what type of research is being done these days? We do. We have, um, we have a very active research program. We do that in a number of ways. So one is clinical trials, clinical studies. We're very involved in that. There are a number of clinical trials going on right now in TSC, testing the effects of particular drugs on neurocognition, for example, and those with TSC. There's a trial going on testing mTOR inhibitor everolimus or mTOR for efficacy in seizures. So again, you know, unproven, but there's a reasonable hypothesis. There are clinical trials going on, and the TS Alliance is a partner with those. That's something too large for us as an organization to fund, but we're very active in terms of being the word out and helping recruit for these studies, and we've been very effective at getting the word out so that these studies are recruiting well uh, so that we can get good answers to these questions. We fund research by academic researchers as well. This might include not only basic research on the cellular pathways, but things like genetics, genetic research, modifier genes, 
What is it that makes this disorder so variable from person to person? Even in identical twins, they don't have the same manifestations necessarily. Of course, they're more similar than, than those who are unrelated, but it's not identical. So there's something else going on. There's a lot of basic and genetic type science that is left to be discovered, and we fund some of that. We also have a program to facilitate the testing of candidate drugs, particularly drugs that can be repurposed. So we funded some drug screening projects over the past few years, and now we're forming a preclinical testing consortium so that we're not funding individual projects around the country or around the world, but rather we're getting those investigators together to work collaboratively on these projects to test the best potential drugs and the best hypotheses as, as efficiently as possible. And finally, we maintain a natural history database, which is collecting over time. It's now seven years in existence, collecting over time information on currently 1,300 individuals with ESC from clinical records. So how does this disorder progress in a relatively large sample of those with TSC? So a lot of exciting pieces that we have out there. We can't afford to fund everything on our own, so we, we have close relationships with the NIH and with the Department of Defense, which also has a, a, a TSC research program. Clinical physicians out there who may not be like myself involved with relatives, should they get involved with the alliance, and how can they? The best impact that I think physicians can have is awareness. We've talked about this variety of presentation. Early diagnosis is key to the best outcome. The awareness of physicians, for example, we recently updated the consensus recommendations for diagnosis, surveillance, and management. Those can be linked to from our website. They're open access, so they're free to all individuals around the world. Just getting up to date on those two relatively short papers would be a great way to get involved and learn more about this disorder so it can be recognized and, and everybody's aware of it. And finally, any one-second last thought for our listeners today? I would say thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more, our website is tsalliance.org. There's also a link to some free CME, free you know, medical education that's around our consensus guidelines. Uh, that can be linked to from our site. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today, uh, personally and professionally, and for sharing your insights on tuberous sclerosis and, and the work being done by the TS Alliance. Thank you. It's, it's our pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greenberg. To learn more about tuberous sclerosis and the Alliance, please visit tsalliance.org. And if you missed any part of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com to download this podcast and others in this series. And we thank you for listening. Please make sure to visit ReachMD.com or the ReachMD Medical Radio app to download this podcast or others in the series.